John was born in northern France in 1509, a second-generation reformer because much of the work of Luther and Zwingli had already begun when John was born. As John grew, he would first enroll at the College of De La Marche, where he would perfect his knowledge of Latin and where he would continue to study theology. He would soon advance to the College of Montague, where he would uh, get an advanced degree in theology. And in, 19, and in 1528, John would leave his study of theology at the request of his father to go and study law. But after the death of his father in 1531, he would feel the freedom to return to his real love, which was classical literature. It was sometime during this period that John uh, moved from being a humanist to being a reformer, an experience he called a sudden change. And in 1536, he traveled to Geneva, and on his way to Strasbourg, only hoping to stay overnight. But at the begging of William Farrell, he was convinced to stay there in Geneva and begin pastoral ministry, for which he would stay almost a lifetime. John would go on and enjoy a long tenure there, where he would be a prolific writer and a systematizer of the Reformation and its thinking. John's seminal work is entitled The Institutes, where he put into clear and pastoral words what the Reformation was all about, and particularly what the Bible taught about justification by faith alone. The Institutes was originally written to help catechize children there in Geneva, but would be used by generations after to help formalize and to give us a better understanding of God's word. While John Calvin is often really known for just two things, number one, predestination and the trial of Michael Servetus, there is much more about his life than those things. And a few things must be remembered. He was a sinner in need of a savior and one who God used tremendously to advance the Reformation cause. Calvin died in May of 1564. Calvin's work, as we'll consider throughout the sermon and throughout the last couple days or weeks and ahead, is that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. This is what the reformers were heralding. And two weeks ago, we began really just a five-part series in the month of October over the five major themes of the Reformation, uh, the five solas of the Reformation uh, that First solo, what we considered two weeks ago, was sola scriptura. That is, the reformers went back to the sources. They went back to scripture as the foundation for theology, for the foundation of understanding who God is and who we are and the world around us. Why would we spend this month thinking about the Reformation? Is because it's the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther in Wittenberg nailed his 95 theses in, in protest to some of the things going on in the Roman Catholic Church, which we don't have time to really particularly think about today. Central to the Reformation, though, was the understanding of justification. That is, how is one saved from the wrath of God? How can I, as a sinner, be saved from God's wrath that my sins justly deserve? This is the question at the heart of the Reformation. Uh, it's really the question that's at the heart of Christianity. In fact, if Luther would say that justification was the summary of all Christian doctrine, 
the article by which the church stands or falls. That is, if you don't have the right understanding of justification, then you don't have a church. Because you can't have true Christians without a true understanding of the gospel. Now, it's helpful to understand what was going on really in the Catholic Church during this time, and so that we kind of understand a little framing of our thoughts this morning. Um, Central to the theology of justification uh, from a Roman Catholic theology, which is still true today, is that a sinner is made righteous. So that in justification, a sinner is made righteous. And I know many of you are thinking this morning, well, I thought that's what we believed about justification, that a sinner is made righteous. We often talk about imputed righteousness. We often talk about how before God we are righteous. But the Protestant understanding of justification is not that. That we are not made righteous. The Roman Catholic teaching is that beginning at baptism and then over time, progressively through good works, a sinner earns their justification. They make themselves ready for justification by doing works. In baptism is the only state in which a sinner is completely holy before God. After that, of course, they begin to sin and need to work that sin off. In their understanding of justification, uh, the communicant merits God's salvation by faith and work cooperating together. In short, they would affirm that sinners are that we are sinners saved by faith, but faith working with other means. And that we are made righteous, that is that we are perfectly holy in justification. So that at baptism we are made righteous and that our sins are washed away and therefore today perfectly holy and worthy of salvation. So the heart of the debate centers on what I just have been repeating, made righteous or declared righteous. Are sinners made righteous or are sinners declared righteous? For help understanding this, we're going to turn to the Apostle Paul this morning, right? We're not going to, we're not going to turn to some statement of faith. We're not going to turn uh, to some clever uh, uh, wording on this. We're going to turn to the Scriptures, and we're going to look there and see what Paul has to say about justification. And before we do that, I just want to kind of set the stage for this passage. Uh, since we're kind of parachuting into this passage and haven't really been walking, setting our context is very important lest we misunderstand what Paul is saying. In the first two and a half chapters of this letter, Paul has been really working uh, to help undermine a salvation by works. He's been working to undermine this work. And so in the first two and a half chapters, Paul argues at length that God's wrath has been revealed against all sin, both Jew and Greek. He goes on to say that that there there is now salvation through the saving righteousness of Christ, that we are saved by grace alone through Christ alone. And our passage this morning, these, these short verses that we're considering, are really the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the letter. It's, it's really the, the centerpiece of all that Paul is going to say. And, and so, But we're just going to deal with it a little bit. And the question then I want you to kind of have in your mind is how can I be saved from God's wrath? If God's wrath is true and genuine, how can I be saved from it? 
Um, if God is angry with my sin because I have willingly rebelled against him, how can I be safe from God's judgment? For an answer to that question, we're going to turn here. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. It's page 941 in our Pew Bibles. I invite you to just have that open before you this morning because we're going to look at it much and consider what it has to say uh, for us today. Hear the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, what is Paul's point in this passage? I kind of summarize it in this way. Justification is the legal act of God in which He declares sinners to be righteous. Justification, as we'll see, is by faith alone in Christ alone. Therefore, it is not earned nor achieved through works. Justification is about our position before God, not our changed nature. Justified sinners remain sinners, but their position changes. Their position before God changes. Their nature does not change. It will be through the process of sanctification that our natures are transformed. And so a right understanding of justification is to separate out justification and sanctification. That is, in justification, a sinner is declared righteous. And through sanctification, the sinner is made holy or made righteous. And so this morning, my hope, my focus, if you will, is going to be that salvation or justification is by faith alone and not by works. We want to make clear that justification, how a sinner is declared right before God, is not by some obedient act that we do. It's not through doing things to, to merit God's love or to earn his pleasure, but rather to trust, to rest in the finished work of Christ. So in our text this morning, Paul outlines for us three reasons why justification must be by faith alone and not by works. So we're going to consider three reasons this morning, very quickly. Uh, what, what are three reasons why justification must be by faith alone? And not by works. First, we'll see that justification must be by faith alone because right standing before God cannot be achieved through works. It is an impossible endeavor to try to earn God's affection. Secondly, we'll see that justification must be by faith alone because right standing before God is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. And then third and finally, we will see that justification must be by faith alone because faith 
looks not inward, but outward to Christ for forgiveness of sin and for salvation. Well, let's consider these three points uh, here in Paul's letter to the Romans. First, justification must be by faith alone because no one will ever have right standing before God through obedience or through works. Paul begins by saying that the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, what is this righteousness of God? What what is righteousness, and particularly this, this unique phrase, righteousness of God? It's a term used by Paul to describe God's character. That God is holy and God is just. It comes from the legal world to help understand the character of God is one who is holy And because of his holiness, he must judge sin. That is, that if God just kind of looked over and said, you know, sin's not a big deal, you know, we're all broken, we're all fallen, we all make mistakes, then God would not be holy. God would not be just. We all know that from our own world that we live in, right? One of the things that probably gets under our skin the most would be an unjust judge. A judge who is unfair in his declarations. A judge who could take a bribe. As we see even in our own court system how that would infuriate us if we were to stand before a judge and that judge you know, give us a harsher punishment than what we deserve. Or the guy behind us, you know, he gets off scot-free while we have to do something else for the same crime. It was the righteousness of God that Luther really just struggled with the most as he meditated uh, where the term comes up first in the letter is in uh, chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. And, and there he's wrestling with the righteousness of God. How is it that sinners can have a relationship with this holy God? If God is holy and God is just, and, and Luther like believed that, he didn't doubt that, he affirmed that, he's like, yes, he is, God is holy and God is a good, just judge, he cannot take a bribe, he can't, you know, his judgments are always fair and right, and if that is true, how will I ever, ever be able to satisfy his justice? How will I ever through my obedience? And Luther's like struggling. He's like, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I need saved from God. Because God is righteous and holy. So having a a really a robust understanding of the righteousness of God, that God is holy and that God is just, helps us to have a solid understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To help us understand justification. By faith alone. Our understanding then is that God is declaring sinners to be righteous uh, through this work. Our righteousness is not our own, but it is alien to us. It is the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to our account. We notice in this passage also that Paul goes on to say that righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. In the first two and a half chapters, he just systematically goes through, step by step, why one will never, ever be able to measure up to God's holy standards. Sin has so infected us that we can never obey God's law. As he writes there just a 
just a few words before, for by works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight. And in case you think that didn't qualify to you, I think he's pretty clear. It says no human being. Like if you're a human today, that means you. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do which is going to cause God to declare you acceptable to him. And that should frighten you. It frightens me. Because it means that I've got to find some other means to appease God's wrath than my good works. Or as Paul wrote, and we heard earlier from from Nathan, in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. No person, not one, has ever been justified by works save one human being, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only one who lived the perfect life and therefore could be justified, if you will, in God's sight. And so the saving righteousness of God is available only through faith in Christ. In verse 22, Paul emphasizes this by repeating the same point twice. Look at verse 22 with me. He says, uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. The word faith and the word believer are the same word. One's the noun and one's a verb. It's the same same idea. Faith saves, belief saves, right? So he's saying, like, he just repeats himself. He's like, look, this is the only way. He, he boxes it in like bookends. There's no way around it. The only way to be saved is through faith. Paul was emphasizing here that it is available only. The only means by which a sinner can be saved is by faith. And he makes his point so clear. God's saving righteousness is made available to us. That is, what is revealed is not God's judging righteousness, but his saving righteousness. That yes, God is holy and just, but he has worked out a way by which he can remain just... That is, God doesn't just look past sin. He can remain just in his judgment and still welcome sinners into his presence. He has worked out a way for which you and I can be saved from his wrath. We'll consider in a moment what what that way is. But this point that the saving righteousness of God is available only through faith is the point that Luther was just arguing all the time. As he wrote, a person is justified by faith alone and not any works. We are promised righteousness solely by faith in Christ, not by works of the law or by love. Wherefore, it is out to be the first concern, it ought to be, excuse me, the first concern of every Christian. Listen to this, this is so pastoral. Love this. It ought to be the first concern of every Christian to set aside all confidence in works and grow in knowledge, not of works, but of Christ, who suffered and rose for him. Why is it impossible for us to be saved by good works? Why is it impossible for you and I to be saved by obedience? So maybe this morning someone here is like, hey, you know what, I, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. I, I, I think it's possible to be saved by obedience. Why is it impossible? Why is Paul arguing this? Well, in short, because everyone is a sinner. Look what he says in verse 23. Uh, 
For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In, in, in the most famous, probably well-known passage in all of Romans, for no one, right? No one. Exclusive. There's no one. No one is able because of sin. The great dilemma of the Bible is that how can holy people hang around a, unho- a holy God? How can unholy people hang out with a holy God? That's the dilemma created when Adam and Eve sin. What happens? They get kicked out of the garden. God's not like, hey, let's hang out. Let's have dinner. No, he says, get out of here. Bye. See you later. Because I am holy and you are sinful. You can't be around me anymore. This is why God uh, instituted in the Holy of Holies where where Moses and and the rest of Israel were constantly separated, a a symbol of separation. Uh, We've used this often uh, but but I'll use it again. Unholy people cannot go to heaven. Unholy people cannot go to heaven. You might think, my gosh, I mean, so no one can go to heaven. And that's the point. You see, if we understand our sin, we understand the great dilemma. I'm unholy. God is holy. He's just. How the heck am I going to be able to be with God? How can God be with sinful people? Thankfully, through the cross, he works that out, and we'll consider that in detail. Our sin is so great that it cannot be overcome by our obedience. There's nothing we can do to to, to kind of cover up our sin, to like, you know, hide it from God with our goodness and our awesomeness. There is nothing you will ever be able to do to measure up to God. Friend, I wonder this morning, how are you tempted to believe that justification is by works? How do you live as if it's true? Do you realize that when you think your relationship with God is based on you, you're actually undermining the gospel? You're you're, you're robbing yourself of assurance? You're robbing yourself of joy and satisfaction? And I don't want to remind you today, there's nothing you will ever do that will please God. That's good news. That's good news because that means that your salvation is not based on you. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, that even we can't mess up this whole salvation thing. That God is so gracious to save sinners. That in the end, God will not save us because we work hard. So I wonder if that's you this morning, you're thinking, no, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be good to my neighbor. All those kind of things. And you think in that God's going to be like, oh, it's all right. It's okay you rebelled against me. It's okay you hate me. I still want you to, no. Or maybe you think this morning, well, God is love, you know. He's so loving and so kind and, you know, he just accepts me for who I am. It's not true. It's a lie. He accepts us as sinners and he saves us by grace and not by works. No one will ever be accepted by God based on their goodness or their obedience. Religion always says, do this and be accepted. And maybe that's you. That's what you think. Like, if I do this, God will accept me. The truth is, 
the gospel says Christ has done this. And if you believe that that satisfied God's wrath, then you will be saved. No amount of good works will ever be enough to satisfy God's just wrath against your sin. Your sin is too great. Your grievance is too big. The law does not provide salvation, but exposes our sin and our unrighteousness. Therefore, to be convinced that justification is by faith alone, one must begin with human sin and our inability to save ourselves. If you have a right understanding of your sin, then you'll recognize the need for salvation by faith alone. Let's turn to our second point. Justification must be by faith alone because right standing before God is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. Look at what he says in verse 24. Uh, And are justified, verse 23, just to get context, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now we'll deal with the middle there in just a moment, but I want you to look at verse 24, the, the beginning of it. Justified by his grace as a gift, received by faith. So salvation is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. We are justified by grace. We, we spent all of last Sunday just, just, just marinating in that truth, that we are saved by grace. It's encouraged our souls with the truth that, that we are saved by grace, that God is a gracious God, a loving and kind God. And to attempt salvation by work is to throw the gift of God's grace in his face. It is. It's to take the gospel. It's to take God's word and to say, you know what, God, I don't need that. I can do this on my own. I know you've done all this with Jesus and he died on a cross and that's great stuff. But, but I really think that I'm good enough to, to, to earn your love. I really think I can measure up. You see what we do? I mean, you imagine like imagine like at Christmas, right? You're giving out gifts and everything like that. And people begin throwing them back. I don't want your gift. It's not good enough. It's not it, it's not what I wanted. That's what we do when we begin to slowly be tempted to think that justification is by works and not by grace. It's by the unmerited favor of God that he has called sinners. But not only that, we see that through Christ we have been freed from sin. There is great hope in the gospel because you're encouraged to know that we are free. This is a gift to be received, not something to be earned. Uh, Paul uses this language here in verse 24 about the redemption that is in Christ. Uh, Paul uses language kind of echoing back to the Old Testament. In the Israelites, when they were freed from slavery, they were redeemed from the bondage of slavery. They were purchased by God. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are purchased, we are free. Now, why does he do that? Because when did the law come? Did it come before Passover or did it come after Passover? Did the law come, they obeyed it, and then he freed them? Or did he free them and then give them law? He freed them, then gave them law. And so the law was never meant to save. The law was never designed for men and women to think that they could somehow earn God's pleasure. The law always was pointing people forward to Christ, to the great sacrifice that would come through Jesus. 
So as we center in on this passage, we see throughout this that Paul has three times now said that that justification comes through faith, by faith, and has faith. So what is faith? Faith is a word that's often misunderstood and misused in our culture. We throw it around. We're like, you know, I really uh, have, you know, uh, so for example... Um, if you're a Ravens fan, which I don't know why, but maybe you are, and, and you're che- cheering on the Ravens today, and uh, I might say to you, know, have faith that the Ravens will win. You know, yeah, they, they, they look good, there's been some issues, but, but have faith, they'll win. Right? We turn faith into sort of this, this wishful hoping that something will happen. But biblical faith is not that. It's not a wishful, like, man, I really hope God saves me. I really hope this happens. It may not happen. I don't know. We'll just see how it turns out. No, faith is something greater and more meaningful than that. And throughout the Bible, there are really several words that are used interchangeably. One is belief and the other is faith. To believe. So Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1. And what does he say? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or as Paul uses here, the word faith to believe. But what is faith? Well, a few things to consider this morning. First, belief or faith is more than intellectual assent, but it is not less than intellectual assent. So I'll I'll kind of break that apart. Uh, Many times you'll hear people talk about believing Jesus. If you believe that Jesus uh, is real, you know, like Santa Claus. Uh, You know, if you believe Jesus is real and you believe he died on the cross and you believe that he rose from the dead. Right. So what 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 people do is they turn gospel into some historical facts that have to be affirmed, like you have to believe that the Egyptians built the pyramids and not aliens. Right. And, And so that is not what we're talking about here, not believing a set of facts. Right. Like so that's just historical fact, like Jesus was a real guy. And he died on a cross. I mean, even non-Christians attest to that, right? You understand that, right? That's attested. Josephus makes very clear that happens. Other writers make very clear, non-Christian writers, right? So so just believing that is, is not enough. And James, for example, says that even the demons believe, right? The demons know who Jesus is. They're not confused about Jesus. They're not confused about Jesus as the eternal son of God. They're not like down there like, I don't know about this. He may not be. He may not. No, they know. They believe. They have right orthodox theology. They have better theology than you and I. But that belief that they have, that knowledge that they have is not saving knowledge. They're not trusting in Jesus for salvation. They're not believing that those things were done for them. And so belief is best understood to be trust. And why I often exhort us to use the word trust rather than faith, because trust gives us a big, vivid picture of what we're doing in the gospel. We are, yes, understanding. We've got to understand the facts, right? So we've got to understand what's going on in the gospel. We've got to understand the substitutionary atonement. We've got to understand some of these big Bible words. We've got to carry them around with us. We've got to know what they mean. But then we depend on them. We trust in them. I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again because I think it's really the best one and uh, the most faithful. If you and I were to take a trip perhaps in the wintertime down to a pond and we were to uh, walk out onto that pond, 
Um, you've never been there before. I've been there a few times, and, and I know it pretty well. And, and uh, so we go out, and I begin to exhort you to you know, go out on the pond. And I would imagine if you were a sane person, um, unless you just were blindly trusting me, uh, you would begin to ask questions like, you know, uh, one, how long has it been frozen, right? Is this like an overnight freeze thing? Uh, how thick is it? Right? So what's the thickness of this thing? Is there any cracks in it? You know, so you're going to do some inspection of it. You're going to look around. Uh, and you're just going to generally be like, why do we need to do this? Right? Um, but you step out on the ice. You step out on the ice. You, you, you go out, you walk out on the ice, and you begin to, you know, walk around. Now you're freaked out of your mind. You're scared. You, you're, you're kind of even maybe crying a bit. A little scared. A little weak. The question is, what is keeping you from falling into that frigid water? Is it your faith? Is it, the, is it the strength of your belief? No, it's the ice. The ice is what's saving you from that water, not your faith. Now, why would that be encouraging? Why is that illustration encouraging? Because it doesn't matter how much faith you have, Trusting in the ice is all you need. You can, have, you can be crying and flailing around and act like a fool out there, but at the end of the day, you've trusted in the ice because you're on it. And that is what faith in Jesus is. It, it's believing that Jesus Christ alone will save me, not from frigid water, but from the depth of God's wrath. That Jesus Christ has satisfied God's anger that my sin rightly deserves and the eternal punishment that I have earned. We don't earn salvation. What we earn is eternal destruction. But in His grace, He has saved us. And so this morning, I encourage you to repent and trust today to trust in Christ alone today, to give yourself to Him, to, to depend on Him with the littlest of faith you can believe. In the Institutes, Calvin writes, faith properly begins with the promise, rest in and ends in it. For in God, faith seeks life, and life that is not found in commandments or declarations of penalties, but in the promise of mercy and, and only in a freely given promise. It means that that promise is yours, not because you earned it, it was free. And so salvation is free, it is by grace, and it is not earned. And so this morning I pray that you would trust in Christ. The reason why the Reformation swept through the European countryside like a wildfire is because of this exact reason. That people could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they, they themselves, the wicked ones they knew themselves to be, could be saved from the wrath of God and they could know it. Assurance of salvation was, was, was life-giving. That one could know without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, without a doubt in your mind today, not tomorrow, today, that God's wrath was fully satisfied you could be declared right in his sight. We're going to consider lastly this fourth point. Very briefly because we're going to build on it next week. And so if you feel I don't do a sufficient job with it, that's okay. Um, we'll deal with it in greater detail 
next week. But, but I cannot leave without giving you just some, some sweet gospel truth for you just to, to meditate on this week. Because throughout this passage, we have seen that faith, so sola fide, faith alone, right, doesn't mean that, that we just have faith and that's it, right? Just faith alone, right? Luther often said, it's not faith alone, right, but faith that is never alone, right? It's faith alone, but faith that's never alone. That means we're not just believing for believing's sake. It's not blind faith. Why don't I like just say, yeah, we'll hope we, this thing works out. No, it's belief in something, trusting something. Depending on something, or in our case, someone. Notice here throughout the passage, in these three times he mentions faith, first in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, uh, then down, justified by his grace, a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then finally in verse 22, Six, he ends this verse, so that God might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus, right? And so what we see here is that Paul is emphasizing that our faith is not in us, we're not believing we got this under control, but that Christ has it under control, that he is our hope, that he is our resting place. That's, that's where we're resting in, but not just Jesus as a person, but, but Jesus is as the Lord. Of salvation, the one who has worked out our salvation. It is the promise of God that we trust. That when we turn up into heaven, we're not like, you know, God, you know, I was really good here and I did this and everything's great. No, 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 no. Um, talk to Jesus. That's why I'm here. I'm trusting Jesus and what Jesus did for me. That's what we're trusting in. So, a few things. Big word propitiation. Propitiation. Uh, what does this mean? It means that God's wrath has been satisfied. Uh, many modern translations, like the Christian Standard Bible, uh, uses the word atoning sacrifice. Right? This language is hearkening back, echoing from the Old Testament sacrificial system. All of that in the Old Testament, all pointed forward, was a foreshadowing of what ultimately happens in the cross. The word there is understanding that, that God forgives sinners because someone else is punished in their place. Propitiation is the, 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 that God's wrath has been propitiated. That is, it's been satisfied. That when Jesus is dying on the cross, he is dying as a punishment for your sin and for my sin. That is, the judgment of God that my sin and your sin rightly deserve. Jesus is bearing the weight of that punishment. Right? Remember, we considered last week that, any, that one sin, I mean, you name it, whatever that sin is, you pick your favorite, uh, one sin against a holy God demands an infinite punishment, a punishment that you and I cannot oh, you know, fulfill. It takes an eternity. That's why uh, we, we affirm that hell is, is not an annihilation, it's kind of deal, but it is an eternal punishment uh, where one suffers for their sins. But in the cross, what Christ is doing is bearing the wrath of God. 
Friends, this is good news because God is not your grandpa who just kind of looks past your sin. He's not Santa Claus who's just bringing you good gifts. He's not just some benevolent guy in the sky who sweeps your sins under the rug. That's good news. Lest your sins come crawling back out from that rug. No, God deals with your sin. So get this, so that today in justification, your sins, past, present, and future, the penalty of those sins has already been paid. Already. Everything paid in full. God's judgment has been saved. That means that God is not up in heaven angry with you because you didn't read your Bible this morning. That doesn't mean that God is frustrated with you because you really haven't grown very much. It doesn't mean God is mad at you this morning and God hates you. If you are in Christ this morning, God's love has been demonstrated. There's no question, no debate, no need to even talk about it. God is good in that way. So he has propitiated his wrath. His wrath has been satisfied through the death of Christ. That's what Paul says, by his blood. There's a speaking of the cross. Through the cross of Christ, God's wrath was satisfied. It's gone. For all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ, God's wrath was satisfied. He is no longer angry with them. And this is where Roman Catholics and Protestants just are a million miles apart. Because if God's wrath was satisfied through the propitiatory work of Christ, then why do I need to do anything to earn or satisfy said wrath? I don't. I believe by faith that God's wrath was satisfied. But not only that, and this is where we we sometimes get goofed up. Not only is it propitiated, but it is expiated. Expiation is the understanding that not only is God's wrath satisfied, but that our sins are washed away. See, that's what the Roman Catholics are emphasizing in their understanding of justification. that, That a sinner is made righteous. That is, that their sins are washed away. And we affirm that, but we affirm more than that. That is that we are not not merely transformed through justification, but that we are declared righteous and receive the righteousness of Christ. Uh, Why I mentioned earlier, you probably wondered, like, what's he talking about Augustus Toplady's Rock of Ages? Well, in that hymn, he uh, works out beautifully this idea that not only is God's wrath satisfied, but that our sins are washed away. Be of sin the double cure, saved from wrath, and made me pure. You see it? Saved from God's wrath, and made pure through Christ. This is what we will consider next week as we consider that our sins have been washed away, and that we have received in the place of a clean slate is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That we have received the rights of Christ. So today, God does not see your mistakes. He sees the perfect life of Christ. That's encouraging this morning. 
That's life-giving this morning. That, 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 that takes a weight of burden because I bet you I can describe your faith. I can describe your relationship with God. I know what it looks like. I've been there. It's the ebb and flow of an ever-changing tide. God feels really close because I obeyed. And because I disobeyed and, and I messed up and I sinned and I, I failed, God feels a million miles away. But the truth of Scripture is that if you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, that your relationship with God is as static today as it will ever be. That so long as Jesus is welcome in heaven, so you will be accepted in heaven. That's encouraging. Brothers and sisters, that is life-giving because we are reminded to continually trust this gives us a, an encouragement to sing but, but, excuse me, before the throne of God above. This gives us encouragement to, to cry out to God. Our faith rests solely in the finished work of Christ. In the cross, the judging and saving righteousness of God meets. God is seen to be both Savior and Judge, just and merciful. In our justification, God declares sinners to be righteous in His sight. A righteousness that is not our own. Alien to us. But is given to us through faith. This is what Paul means in the concluding words. That, that God did this so that he would demonstrate that he is a just God. That he is good. Martin was born in 1491 in the city of Slala in northern France. In 1507 he joined the Dominicans and took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Becoming a Dominican monk. He visited Heidelberg in 1515 and Mainz in 1516 to continue his biblical and theological studies. He, he was like kind of rising up the ranks to become a Roman Catholic priest. In January of 1517, he returned to Heidelberg in order, in order to receive his university decree. And in the year that followed, an event would occur there in the city that would forever change his life. In, 15, in, 18, excuse me, in April of 1518, uh, Luther would come there to Heidelberg. Martin Luther would come for a disputation where he would argue in that disputation this. Luther wrote, he asserted man's incapability to do good, denied free will, set forth a new understanding of theology based on the cross, and proclaimed salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. These truths, as they confronted Martin, would transform his thinking and transform his entire life. Martin was eventually excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, and the town council asked him to leave. As a poor refugee, Martin traveled to Strasbourg. And in 1523, he would begin to work there in Strasbourg as their pastor. For nearly 25 years, he would serve there in Advance the Reformation thinking. Martin Brucer was his name, and he was the one who had called Calvin in 1536 to come to Strasbourg to be the pastor. But then, as we heard at the beginning, uh, uh, Calvin got sidetracked in Geneva and stayed there rather. But Calvin and, and Brucer were, were close friends, and, and throughout their time they worked hand in hand together. And, and Calvin attributes much of his thinking to Martin Brucer and much of his theology. Even some of our own understanding of small groups, Sunday school, and church discipline came from Martin's theology. 
Martin Bucer died February 28, 1551, having lived a life to get out the good news of Jesus Christ, that justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we stand amazed at your grace that you would save a sinner like us. We are not afraid today, Father, to talk about our sin, to talk about what our sin rightly deserves, because we have the hope, we have the assurance, and the promise that our sins have been rightly dealt with through the death of Christ. And that through the death of Christ and his resurrection, we have life. And so by faith, we trust in the finished work of Christ, not resting in ourselves, but in him alone. We pray that you would further our minds and our trust of Christ today. For your glory and our good, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we consider this morning,